1: Coming up on this week's show, a Game Boy powered by the sun. We chat about our dongles. And we catch up with Ken Williams of Sierra.
2: This week's show is brought to you by Harry's.
1: Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour, episode 244, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Ravi Abbott.
2: And me, Joe Fox.
1: And I'm afraid to say no Dan this week for the news because he's got a family situation going on. But he will be joining us for the interview, and my God, the interview is fantastic this week. We've had someone that we've wanted to have on the podcast since the very start, and that is Ken Williams, the founder of Sierra. Do you know much about Sierra, Joe?
2: I don't. Um, Probably people, usually, you know, people probably waving their hands at their computer screens or something when I say, when I start talking, I'm like, I know nothing. But you guys have been absolutely hyped about this. You guys have been chatting to Ken for a couple of weeks now, haven't you, to get this arranged?
1: Um, Yeah, well, Ken's launching a new book. And the thing about Sierra was they were an absolutely huge adventure company, and they came Mm. from the time where it was like, text and not many graphics and mm. they kind of started to introduce cap graphics into their adventure games they had titles like leisure suit larry space quest king's quest and then later on they got to the point of fmv so yeah. they did phantasmagoria which oh, was yeah. like a 5.5 5 million dollar this is in the 90s right? yeah 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 5.5 5 million dollar seven cd FMV games. That was pretty much like what Netflix are doing nowadays. And then they got bought out. And actually a lot of the people that bought them out, the company, um are in jail now, charged (laughs) with fraud. So it's a pretty interesting story. And Ken's actually gonna come on and talk all about the book. And the title of his book is very apt. Yeah. It's not all fairy tales have happy endings.
2: Fair enough. Cool. And this this literally this chat you talk, you go through like the 70s, the 80s, the 90s and then talk about what he's up to today. And yeah, I...
1: we, we try and put so much in, like yeah. me and Dan were just filling up the sheet with questions. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, you know, we've been saving these up for Ken for so many years. Oh, man. Try and fit as much as we can, but I think it'll be a bit of an extended episode this week.
2: Yeah, definitely. So that's going to be coming up in about 15 minutes time. But as always, we have got some cool, a few cool news uh, articles to talk about. Um, starting with this one that I sent to Ravi this week, um, which is a nes cart which is able to connect to your wi-fi to play online to play a game called super tilt bros have you seen this ravi
1: yeah this looks amazing when you sent me this i was like oh my god why for a start why haven't they done this before yeah. like a cart that can do multiplayer why isn't this done on the mini consoles as <laughs> yeah. well yeah i like have you seen this game itself, uh, Super Tilt Bros?
2: Yeah, so it's essentially it's a rip-off of Super Smash Bros, isn't it? Um, but on the NES... Yeah, it's like a demake. Yeah, like a demake kind of thing with its own little sprites and characters, which I think is really cool. And to be honest, I'd want to talk about it anyway, even if it wasn't online, because it just looks like a cool little game. But it's currently in its alpha stage at the moment, so you can download it, uh, which we'll put in the show notes, and you can play it. On your EverDrive, so you can download it and put it on your. You EverDrive. play it on your browser and as well. You can well. Also play it in your browser as well. But the idea is that this is going to be a fully online smash, like playing each other across the world, playing new rivals and stuff like that. And essentially, how it works is it's just it is literally just there's going to be like a Wi-Fi card or something in the NES cart, and then you yeah, it's connect. like a
1: Wi-Fi chip. Yeah, and then you basically go on to Discord. Yeah, and it's not like there's a an interface or a server you go into discord and you're like i need to find someone to play with basically.
2: <laughs> it looks absolutely amazing and like i love smash bros as well so the fact that it's just like a smash bros d make on the nes is cool as no- cool enough but the fact that you can go online is just unreal and like you said you know nintendo should have got onto this they should have done it with with the mini consoles anyway they should have just had you know flash ports and stuff like that on it anyway just so you know i know people have done things like this to it but they should have just made it so it was legit and you could so it's like
1: the super fx chip isn't it like adding adding some extra functionality onto the original system by actually building it into the car which is a really cool little idea well there's another thing that's really cool that's happening at the moment which is the playstation anniversary now this is the launch of the sony playstation uh it's 25 years old, which makes me feel really old.
2: <laughs> that makes me feel old as well. I mean, I was, I mean, how old would have you have been then, Ravi?
1: Oh, God, I, I can't do the
2: maths. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I was about five or six years old 25 years ago. I was
1: 10. You yeah. were 10, there we go. Yeah. Um,
2: and I remember getting the PlayStation at launch. My dad, funny enough, got it from a dodgy guy at the pub. Um, oh nice So <laughs> okay, we got one for christmas and i remember you know at the time we didn't know this we we're just like oh my god playstation absolutely buzzing to have a playstation and the player two port didn't work on it and then after about a week the player one port stopped working on it as well
1: <laughs> it's interesting because i was thinking about it and i was looking at the launch titles and nowadays like you know you've just got the new xbox coming out like the life of uh console Yeah, is really a lot shorter than it was. Like, if you look at the titles here and talk about the launch titles in the UK, Mm. you had Worms and Ridge Racer, but they were brand new. Yeah, you had 3D Lemmings. Oh Oh, oh, God, (laughs) Air Combat, uh, Jumping Flash as well. Yeah, Uh, the DNA Imperative, uh, Kilik. I've never heard of that. Uh, Nova Storm and Rapid Reload. So, like these titles, you know, if you think of PlayStation. A lot of people think Wipeout, but they also think Tomb Raider and all of these ones. But they came years later yeah, di- than the original launch. I'm, you know.
2: I'm quite surprised looking at that. Like, Obviously, you've got Wipeout and Ridge Racer there, which are two really, really big games. And then Jumping Flash as well. Like, I think a lot of people know that one. But the other ones, once again, people might be screaming at me. But I don't know the DNA Imperative and Nova Storm and Rapid Reload. So I'm assuming those ones didn't really take off, like,
1: you know. Well, one of my first ones, the reason I bought it was because it had Micro Machines V3, which (laughs) like was Codemasters, but it was like, I wanted a new version of that. And I'd had that on floppy disk before. So when it came out, it was really early, but there's a great article um, about by Keith Stewart about the kind of time in England when it came out in Europe and the whole, rave scene and stuff like the chemical brothers and uh warp records working with gremlin interactive it's a really interesting uh kind of mix they're talking about how uh the first record he ever reviewed was a goldie remix of the tekken soundtrack oh
2: wow <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> so cool and this is the thing with playstation you know in the early 90s obviously we had the whole like tubular doodular kind of like you know simpsons and stuff like that and then essentially that kind of market grew up a little bit and started to become you know teenagers and stuff like that and I think the PlayStation really really tuned into that because of like you say the kind of like the music scene for PlayStation was huge because of the music was just so I don't want to use like radical and stuff like that but it was so like like you say it was like rave scene in a lot of games like even games which reported to it and stuff like Mortal Kombat 3 and stuff like that I just remember the music as like a young boy just being so amazing to a point that like we would just listen to the soundtracks me and my older brother would put them in our cd player and just play it and just rave in our bedrooms and stuff like that
1: it it was weird because there was like two forms of music so there was like the mainstream kind of spy skills and steps and all of that stuff but then there was like the mainstream underground and Mm. i think that's what playstation tapped into like the music that you'd be listening to in nightclubs yeah. kind of then got put into your living room on, on the television with uh, wipeout and stuff like that where you know you could have imagined them kind of going right we're going to hook up with the spy skills and we're gonna do this, and it could have gone a totally different direction.
2: <laughs> well, just look at the Spice Girls game. Who's talking about that these days?
1: <laughs> I did not even know that before. There I'm still stage. yet to see the movie. So There uh... you go, there
2: you go. And what I also want to point out as well is just these amazing launch titles. We've got all those launch titles. The N sixty four came like what, a year or two later, and it literally came out with Mario sixty four and pilot wings. Yeah, that
1: was that was it. That, that was it. the launch title. That was it. Yeah, but and and that was so far from anything. But also looking at the Japanese launch titles as well, yeah, a lot of them were kind of from stuff like the Mega Drive and other titles like follow-ons from there yeah. and these kind of cult titles, which is it's really interesting to see the kind of different areas and mm. what they launched with. Like Europe was really kind of racy yeah like lots of race games and stuff yeah Yeah. definitely
2: and it's just crazy to think like you imagine these days now we've literally got switch ps4 and xbox well xbox one we've got all the new ones coming out imagine all of a sudden if a new company was just like i mean i know sony aren't new but just somebody new just came into the threw their hat into the ring and just
1: hot point hot point the um guys who make washing machines
2: yeah <laughs> My came brought out, like the hot point you know the, the hot point poly stations coming to you now people will be like what the hell i and want I it see, now <laughs> i can just imagine in the 90s like in 94 95 when this was all happening like it just been absolutely mind-blowing and here we are 25 years later still talking about it on on the edge of the ps5 coming out so and,
1: and it's also interesting as well because i know a lot of people were like oh they're just a hi-fi company and they can <laughs> they, they can't produce a console and stuff like that but like they did come out with a walkman yeah before, man. that's know, true and the, the disc man which were like massive <laughs> well we have that a lot to- don't really have any <laughs>
2: <laughs> the nice.
1: player that was nice. good
2: yeah well we owe a lot to sony don't we so um this next story i don't know a lot about but i thought it was quite interesting we were having a laugh about earlier on the world will never be free of dongles apparently do
1: you know what a dongle is joe
2: well i thought it was something that hung down in between my legs but apparently it's what i charge my iphone with
1: (laughs) yeah so dongles essentially one of those little pieces that you have either a usb stick or a little device that you attach to something to then convert something and we seem to have thousands of them at the Mm. moment um Now, they're saying the word dongle, actually, um, the first reference they can find is a 1984 article in The Guardian where Clive Sinclair um, is actually talking about a dongle as an ancient piece of computer jargon, uh, which is interesting. But what we used to have, so on the Amiga, you'd buy like a really expensive piece of software, Mm -hmm. so it'd be like... 500 quid for the software if it was some editing for video or or something like this but people would crack that and the one thing that they really struggled with cracking was actual hardware yeah so what they would do is they make this little dongle which would stick in the parallel port and then something on that dongle would then say this is a genuine copy and a lot of software in the early days had these kind of pass-throughs in the middle mm. now you're probably finding like because of what mac do and constantly changing formats and <laughs> cables you and mobile phones as well you've got a variety of dongles that are used all over the place i'm sure your bag's full of them especially being an audio guy as well
2: well straight away i can literally think of in you know i mean i'm joking about dongles and stuff like that i do know what they are obviously but like straight away like Like you say, I could think of like five around my house instantly. And, you know, one's in my car and stuff like that. You just use them all the time. I use them in work all the time. Even just as something as silly as just plugging your headphones in, charging your phones. Like you say, working with computers, you just use them absolutely all the time. So I can, at the same time, like you think of these like futuristic worlds and stuff, like we've got wireless charging and stuff like that now. But you can't, I, I do agree with this article. I can't imagine a world without that i
1: just can't see it yeah and they seem to be making some good points here they're kind of saying anything that you know passed through mm. a, a device was essentially a dongle so like game genies back in the days oh, really can be thought of as dongles because yeah. pretty much a game was passing through it and then you were like modifying it now i've got a thing which i i love security so i recommend to everyone which is called a YubiKey. Mm-hmm. now a lot of people can hack your twitter or something with their phone um and they can do a thing called SIM jacking, which is ringing up and going, oh, I've changed my SIM card. And then they change it to the location. But the new thing in security is to have a physical key that you put into your computer. Okay. And you press every time you log into Facebook or Twitter. So the only way someone else can do that is by breaking into your house, micking your dongle. So actually, it's now really helping with security. Instead of protecting people's software, it's kind of protecting their accounts. And I think this is going to go on. As we do go on, I really can't see us getting rid of dongles.
2: Can you imagine that, like, in a couple of years' time, you walk into Curry's to buy a new computer, and they're like, "And here's the key to your computer as <laughs> well. <laughs> here's the
1: key to your computer the key. storage. It's, it would sound
2: very old school. <laughs> you data
1: know? storage unit. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. It sounds very old school. But obviously, they don't mean a physical, like, lock and key, but like a dongle, essentially. Yeah, you know? that's
1: the thing. It's yeah. like, you know, software's always crackable. is always breakable. But if you have a physical piece of hardware then it's yeah. going to be a lot tougher to kind of circumvent.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, well, we'll see. Maybe in 10 years' time, we'll, when we're still here and we're still old and grey talking about these kind of things, we'll see where the world's at with its dongles. So our next story is a bit of a funny one. Um, so this is a battery-free retro Game Boy that runs on solar power and button mashing, something you're really good at.
1: Yeah, well, well <laughs> trying to get good at, but um, yeah, I'm well into my, like, hippie kind of re- renewable energy and stuff like that, and this is a really cool little device. It's basically a Game Boy that requires no power. It's been made by a group of researchers in a university. Uh, it's, it works on a combination of solar and users' interactions as well, so kind of the more you play with it, the more power you're going to yeah. generate. Um, I think that's really interesting because, like, man, Game Boys, they, they used to take up a lot of power and a lot of battery costs as well. Yeah. Imagine this back in the days, like, you know, if you had a solar kit that you could have put on your Game Gear or on your Game Boy, <laughs> you'd probably need a lot more for the Game Gear, a whole panel well, <laughs> to that's, add to that's it. But... Well, that's, the,
2: that's the interesting thing. They've noted in the article, the university have said that the actual cartridges do actually take quite a lot of power like they they would suck those batteries dry um so it does actually take a considerable amount of of you know button bashing and stuff like that to keep it going which is interesting um but they have got from what i believe they have got tetris and solitaire running on it perfectly fine from button bashing and solar power that's
1: awesome i assume it's got like a battery charge in there because if you leave it out in the sun then you probably don't want out to- play in the sun all day because of screen glare or whatever. So <laughs> you <laughs> maybe you are you retro bright on the it, battery. as well. <laughs> yeah. And then you go
2: inside and
1: and play on it at night or or in a dark dark cupboard
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. or something. <laughs> <laughs> on your drive home and you're looking for the uh the street lights to light it up so you can see what you're doing.
1: <laughs> yeah. But yeah it like, does
2: look pretty cool.
1: It's a cool little cool little device and idea. I bet you I bet you there was a kind of solar kit because there were so many add-ons for the Game Boy back in the days, wasn't there? Yeah, absolutely. There must be some kind of official... There must official... Be
2: some of these unofficial Mad Cats ones or something. But what I like about it is they've put the solar panel strips around the screen and then one across the bottom as well. So they're not too garish, which is pretty cool. But I think for me, yeah. it's the button bashing <laughs> that does it for me.
1: <laughs> you need like a Game Boy
2: solar panel cap. Yeah, that you then
1: <laughs> then plug into. Your <laughs> no, device. that's
2: very 90s. <laughs> His solar powered cap, like <laughs> just like a big blind cap.
1: everyone with the mirrors. <laughs> <laughs>
2: that's absolutely amazing. Well, like always, we'll put all our stories down in the show notes. Um, and just before we get onto our amazing interview with Ken today, um, we just got a few words from our sponsors today.
1: This week's episode is brought to you by Harry's Razors, and I don't know if you've noticed a difference with me recently i've shaved the beard off and my god it was so better with harry's because it's it's a big undertaking doing this joe you know
2: (laughs) i was gonna say like me and ravi we have little competitions with our beards because of i'm i'm a hairy guy i'm not gonna lie and for me shaving my beard off is usually an absolute nightmare because it just gives me so it just irritates my skin so much so to see Ravi like just kind of take that plunge and shave his beard off and it actually looks really 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 good I am I am tempted to do it myself and reveal the triple chin
1: well I'll tell you the scary part was kind of shaving the beard off and having all those really hard bits of stubble there and also kind of hurting yourself Mm. but I'll tell you Harry's really helped now what I loved about Harry's was the way that you kind of held the razor on your face and the smoothness that I got whilst using the foaming shave gel. It was really nice. And I've kept doing that. You know, you have to do it a couple of times after actually shaving your beard. Mm. And oh God, I feel absolutely baby smooth. Now, the story (laughs) of Harry's is there were two guys, Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys who were fed up with the price of overpriced razors, and they started Harry's to fix shaving. Now, they knew there was only one way to ensure the quality. So they bought their own factory in Germany. The best part, they haven't raised prices, so the replacement blades are still as little as $1.75 each, which is a really good price. Wanna give Harry's a go? Well, you can really help the podcast out by starting your subscription to a trial set, which includes a weighted ergonomic handle, their five-blade razor cartridge, rich levering shaving gel, and a travel blade cover to protect your blades on the move so get the comfortable shave that you deserve head to harrys.com forward slash retro to claim your trial set for just 3.95 you'll also be supporting the podcast by doing this you know we don't get any income apart from these adverts from this podcast and they really help us out so go out and check harry's out today again head to harrys.com forward slash retro
2: and it does really really help us out and it does keep us going and it does keep the show running um with that in mind as well we did actually have our retro hangout last sunday didn't we
1: yeah so we had our retro patrons hangout and that was really good fun actually dan sadly couldn't join us for that one but uh we had a good laugh on there didn't we and you know our patrons keep this show going like you may have noticed that my mic has improved in quality it has. joe's still on the floor
2: i'm still on the floor i'm still on the floor with my old laptop well ravi's old laptop uh, but the gear is ready at dan's at the moment and that is all thanks to you guys supporting the show so we do have a patreon at the moment um which does cost about the price of a cup of coffee each month which like i say does go back into the rung of the show and it does also get you a massive massive shout out in the most prestigious hall of fame of all time the retro hour high score
1: yes and also an ad-free episode yeah (laughs) so you can donate at theretrohour.com just like our donators Gunnar Wirtland
2: Christian Landley
1: Analog Darling
2: Bernard Quinn
1: and Ross McPhee so thank you everybody for your support and now we are joined by Ken Williams the founder of Sierra Online to talk all about
4: You're listening to The Retro Hour Podcast, and it's time to welcome on this week's very special guest. Now, today, we're going to be talking about one of our all-time favorite companies with someone that we've wanted on this podcast ever since we started five years ago. And it's amazing that we finally managed to get Ken Williams on the show, the founder and CEO of Sierra Online. And we're going to be talking about his incredible new book, Not All Fairy Tales Have Happy Endings, The Rise and Fall of Sierra Online. So it's our pleasure to welcome to The Retro Hour Podcast, Ken Williams. Hello.
5: Hello. uh, Thank you for having me here. This is uh, pretty exciting.
4: Well, I mean, let's go right back to the start. I mean, I I was reading in your book, actually, that you got captivated by reading stories as a very young child.
5: Yeah, I don't know why, but um, uh, yeah, for whatever reason, I was an early reader and uh, loved it. And um, I don't know, read, read everything, everything I could get my hands on and reading at a much higher level. So I don't know but uh, yeah, that, that was a good thing. Was that when you and Roberta met? No, we we met, gosh, when uh, I was still, I think it was kind of that window when I had graduated high school, but not started college yet. And I uh, was still peddling newspapers. You know, at that point, I'd kind of graduated to running crews of kids that were selling papers. And uh, she was dating a friend of mine. And uh, we kind of double dated. And I liked his date better than mine. And traded traded out yeah we've we've been married now uh, 48 years something like that so wow. it, uh, it worked yeah you know, my parents at the time because we were so young um be, we were practically living together for a year before i turned 18 and we got married the well i think three days after i turned 18.
4: you know as a man who only got married like two years ago i mean what what's the secret to that longevity then do you think?
5: I don't know. It, uh, it's, uh, it. I, I think just uh, saying yes and letting her have her way all the time.
4: <laughs> <So>. Great advice. <laughs> well, yeah. speaking of things that change your life, Ken. I mean, when did you get to see your first computer? Then, I mean, do you still remember that moment?
5: Yeah, it was um, in high school. We did a, a field trip to a college, UCLA, and uh, you know, I didn't really even see the computer. All I saw was a little keyboard and it had a game on it called Star Trek, and I was, God, I would have been 14 years old or something at the time, but uh, it was just a text game, and it was kind of stupid, but uh, wow, you know, it just blew me away. um, I I was fascinated, and, uh, you know, even then later when I did sign up for college, I majored, there was no computer science classes in those days, and there were no computers. If I I was... uh, I think my second year in college, or first and a half year, I guess you'd call it, when I saw a calculator for the first time. So it was it was a different era then. Well, you started
1: programming by yourself. Uh, what languages were you learning, and what kind of stuff were you
5: creating? Hmm, I, it, you know, in in college, I started programming, and it was kind of class assignments, but I had access to the computer. And that was really what I wanted most, was just the uh, chance to be able to run programs. So I think in college, they were probably teaching basic, but I really don't remember. I remember that uh, programming in those days was on card decks with one line of code on each card. You had to go load them in a reader. And then uh, Roberta and I would sit around for hours waiting for somebody in the back room to uh, load the deck of cards into a computer. And then they'd throw printouts in a basket where you'd find out you made one typo and the whole stupid thing didn't run. But um, I was just writing kind of, I remember I wrote a program to balance our checkbook and just anything, um, for whatever reason, I, I just loved the machine. And uh, would anything I could think of to program, I would program.
4: And Roberta was a computer well, operator as well, was she?
5: Yeah, she, well, my early jobs were as a computer operator, which in those days Big companies would have their databases on a series of tapes. So if somebody had you know, 100,000 customers, that might span 50 tapes. And when they would run their m- monthly um, bills, or pay bills, uh, they would have to go through tapes one by one. And you would need somebody sitting there in the computer room. And you'd get a message on a stream saying, "You know, please hang, hang tape 25. You'd have to go hunt it down, put it on the tape drive and let it spend for a while. And so it wasn't particularly um, <laughs> great work, but uh, Roberta would go in with me and because I was studying, she would uh, do all the tape hanging. So she ultimately got a job as a computer operator. And then a uh, few years down the line, she uh, did actually work briefly as a computer programmer. But, uh, but at night I was writing her code for her. And, uh, and that, uh, that worked out. She was never particularly uh, gifted as a computer programmer. But she, she had a good friend at home.
1: Well, the computer revolution was kind of in full swing by then. And uh, you got an Apple II. Why was that machine so important to gaming?
5: Well, it was kind of the first real personal computer that kind of caught on. Radio Shack made the TRS-80 and it kind of showed where the market was headed. But it was when they launched the Apple II and launched the um, disk drives for the Apple II. So you kind of had a uh, reliable way to load programs. The old cassette tapes we used to do were slow, and the tape drives were constantly breaking. In fact, you'd use a home tape recorder and play it into your Trash 80 or TRS-80, and that was was miserable. And then the Apple came out with uh, more memory and floppy disk drives, and suddenly uh, you had a platform on which you could create games. And, uh, and actually I, I was not a gamer. I mean, kind of the whole company started because I had a game on a teletype I was using and Roberta saw it and fell in love with the game and took away the teletype from me. And I was, uh, working on an Apple II to build a compiler, a Fortran compiler, and, uh, thought that was going to be what would form the company. But, um, she talked me into writing a game for her called mystery house. And, um, And the rest was history. I mean, uh, I went to computer stores and would talk about my uh, compiler and then I would show them her game. And uh, it was clear what excited people. And that was it.
4: Well, speaking of Mystery House as well, I mean, it was called a high-res Mystery House because it obviously had uh, graphics in there as well, which obviously was quite revolutionary for the time. What was kind of the design process then? How did that go around, like designing that first game? How did it come about?
5: kind of strange that a lot of the game happened because I um, was uh, I was not wanting to do the game. You know, it was really seen more at the time as kind of something to get Roberta happy so she would leave me alone so I could focus. And uh, so instead of just coding the game, I, I focused on building tools that she could use to build the game that anyone could. So and, that, and there were no tools in those days. I mean, there was no such thing as graphic editors or even text editors. Everything kind of had to be done um, bootstrapped, I guess. or It, it, it was kind of crazy. So I, you know, and, and when she first talked about doing the game, it was uh, strictly a text game. And I was the one who at dinner kind of said, well, wouldn't it be cool if we could do pictures? And she, her eyes lit up and she said, how could you do that? And then I started thinking about the limitations of a hundred k floppy. I mean, that, that you cannot imagine how small a hundred k is. And she's talking about having uh, eighty rooms plus characters, and um, how to fit all that onto a floppy. And I think, you know, I don't remember, but I think even the operating system DOS was on, not DOS, whatever it was, was on that uh, floppy disk. And uh, so I, I came up with the idea. It, it's weird to think, but vector graphics. Uh, probably existed somewhere at that time, but certainly I didn't know about them. They didn't exist on personal computers. And so um, I kind of had the idea of um, what if I could just mark endpoints of lines and save those, and that would be super tight. And then um, compile, since I was, I had a kind of a compiler development background, compile a fairly English-like description of the game that she had into something meaningful. And uh, that became Mystery House. But uh, we did fit, I guess, uh, 80 very primitive looking pictures onto a floppy disk that uh, was pretty, pretty darn tiny. You
4: uh, probably couldn't even fit a mouse cursor into 100K today.
5: Yeah, I mean, 100K, I mean, even, you know, wouldn't hope one picture. Although, um, yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, we had to fit the whole game, all the text, the operating system into it. And, um, so it kind of blew people away when they saw it. And um, even, even the early versions, we would take around to computer stores and everybody in the store would line up because they hadn't seen anything like that before. And it helped sell Apple computers and helped sell our games. And it was kind of fun.
1: Well, I heard even Steve Wozniak was a big fan of Mystery House.
5: Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. He, um, when he had his helicopter crash or something, he was playing it in the hospital. Yeah. Well, there wasn't much at that time. Yeah. He didn't. Um, I don't think it really kind of occurred to him that people would be doing graphics and games and stuff. Because when Apple started, kind of grew out of a, a hardware hacker club. And the idea that it would become quite as uh, mass market and consumer as it did, I think surprised even him. But, um, you know, jobs, uh, jobs understood what to do and turned it into a, a heck of a company.
4: Yes, you talk in your book about the fact that back then, you know, you could pick up the phone and call Walls or Jobs just directly.
5: That's true. That was, uh, that was a different time. But, uh, but they were nice guys, So and uh, obviously very creative.
4: Well, how influential was Colossal Cave Adventure for you?
5: Um, well, for me, not at all. For Roberta, a lot. Um, yeah, she, I, you know, I didn't really get to play other than for about 10 minutes at the beginning. And then she uh, kidnapped my computer and wouldn't give it back, and uh, so yeah, I, I was always kind of the uh, technology and um, yeah, kind of the technology and management and marketing and sales. And uh, Roberta was more the creative genius who figured out the games. So I, you know, it was it was obviously critical to the company, and you know, basically was the uh, game that started the company. But uh, for me personally, nah, you know, I never really was a gamer. Well, you were called online systems
4: at that stage. Um, How did you go about distributing the game? And when did the name change to Sierra? And where did you get that name from?
5: Well, I was doing consulting for programming in the LA area. You know, I actually went to a uh, trade school that was, uh, you know, in those days there would be matchbooks or something. And they would have like, if you can draw this picture, then you can enroll in our school. LA was kind of in those days. It was a small place. There weren't that many people that had mainframe computers, and they all kind of got to know me. In in kind of the great pecking order of being a software developer in the Los Angeles area in those days, the um, you know the best you could be would be to be working with um, what the big IBM mainframes uh, that had you know thousands of terminals attached to them that uh, people were using all over their companies. And there was no internet. I mean, they were mostly physically attached by wires. And, uh, but you would, you would call it once you uh, were on one of those terminals that you were online. And uh, so since my specialty became working on uh, large uh, IBM mainframes with thousands of terminals, I started calling myself online systems and did work for most of the companies in the Los Angeles area on a contract basis. And uh, and that was going to be our name. And then when we moved uh, up to the Sierras and started getting a little more official, we uh, changed the name to Sierra online. And, um, and, and let's see, and the dist- distribution of the original games was there, there wasn't a lot of computer stores and software wasn't sold. I mean, obviously it wasn't sold on the internet because we, you know, we were decades from having an internet. Yeah. So software was sold physically in computer stores and, I remember there were something like 11 computer stores in the United States at that time. So selling wasn't, wasn't exactly real hard. You know, it was uh, more just a matter of um, my brother took Chicago and I think my father-in-law took San Francisco and I was the rest of the U S and then I started uh, selling for some of, you know, there were a few of us uh, like Scott Adams was doing a company called adventure international. And there was, program a software. There weren't many, but I started distributing for kind of everybody who was selling software because I figured if I'm taking the time to call a computer store and peddle my game, why not sell somebody else's at the same time? And then I can get a dollar or two when their game ships. And um, that, that, but then quickly I realized distribution was a different business than software development. And I sold the uh, distribution side of the business to um, a friend of mine who had worked with me and, uh, and that really just meant transferring the box of software from my car to his car. It didn't uh, <laughs> that sounds like a bigger deal than it was. So, but uh, but no, that that was the origin of the name and uh, how distribution worked in those days. Although my friend Bob, when he took it over, turned it into a billion dollar company. So um, it a um, yeah, a lot grew out of that. You know, they say a rising tide raises all ships, and we were certainly in the right place at the right time when an industry was being born.
1: Well, what what did you think of the PC Junior? Because I know you had a relationship with IBM and they helped actually kind of fund and start the um, King's Quest series.
5: What did I think of IBM? I mean, I loved IBM because they um, we, we developed our relationship with IBM at a time when the company had kind of hit the skids. We uh, diverted from doing software for Apple II to producing software for uh, video game systems and produced a bunch of cartridges that were very expensive. And uh, it was at the time when Atari, um, uh, in in the old days, Atari um, had the licensed E.T., which was thought to be huge, but uh, the video game market crashed completely and they wound up burying them out in the desert and we were kind of in the same camp. We had converted our entire product line and all of our programming over to video game systems. And that market just fell apart. It's hard to believe today, but uh, there was zero revenue coming and it took our company under. I mean, we were as bankrupt as bankrupt could be. And then IBM happened to come to me and say, um, we'd like you to port wizard and the princess over to this new secret computer we have coming out. And, Roberta, rather than wanting to just change the graphics, uh, wanted. Uh, you know, she looked at the specs for the PC Junior and said, can you do animation? And I kind of said, I don't know. Let me think about it. And um, put together a demo with uh, animation of King's Quest, which uh, kind of started as a, a Wizard and a Princess, but then uh, she completely redesigned it. Once she figured out she could do animation, and we showed it to IBM and they were blown away. And uh, that allowed me to ask for big development advances. And then I said, well, maybe we could do more products for you. And that got us more development advances. And all that cash came in. And that allowed me to hire back. uh, We'd laid off 100 people. and uh, But I was almost uh, within weeks able to go to IBM, get money from them, and go hire all those people right back and put them to work on uh, the PC Junior. So I love the PC Junior. It saved, saved my company.
4: It's interesting, you know, obviously IBM are not really known for like the, the home market, but the PC junior was kind of their attempt to get into that market. It wasn't I know it wasn't a, a huge success, but it sounds like, you know, it really did help out Sierra.
5: Yeah, no, it did. It, um, yeah, it, it was it, that what they were trying to do was figure out a home computer that wouldn't cannibalize their uh, PC business because they had a very good market going selling IBM PCs into the business market. And they were worried if they did a cheaper machine that could also run, uh, uh business products, then they would, uh, hurt their ability to sell $2,000, $3,000 business computers. So they tried to deliberately build this machine to be gutless. And, uh, that left the door open for others to compete on the low end and Tandy introduced the Tandy 1000, which was effectively the same machine, but with a much better keyboard and, uh, Yeah. And the rest of the story is that IBM at the time was under investigation for monopolistic practices and was hyper scared that uh, they would be uh, broken up by the government. So they didn't ask for exclusivity. So they funded all this software. They built the machine. The machine died. Their competitor, Tandy, had built a uh, comparable machine. And uh, all of a sudden, I was sitting with all this software already paid for and Radio Shack with 6,000 stores selling Tandy computers. And they said, can we buy all that product? I said, sure. And, uh, and that suddenly gave us distribution to an enormous number of outlets with software that uh, nobody except us uh, really had created a lot of software for Tandy. And that uh, that gave us kind of an exclusive shot at the market for a long time before competitors got caught up. And. Was uh, was amazing, so that uh, that worked very well for us.
1: Roger Wilco was a absolutely fantastic character and kind of parodied the Star Wars and Star Trek, but also it was long before other parodies like Red Dwarf. Um, how did you guys get this idea of doing uh, Space Quest and those titles?
5: Yeah, Space Quest happened because one of our artists, uh, a guy named Mark Crow, teamed up with one of our. I think it was quality assurance. Um, you know, a game tester, uh, Scott Murphy, and uh, they were always coming to me saying, "We got a funny idea for a space game. Why don't you, um, why don't you build a game?" And I said no. Um, you know, I was always kind of the mean guy that would have to say no because I just wanted them to do their art and leave me alone, kind of. But uh, then, you know, on their own, they built a uh, prototype and came in and showed it to me, and I re- immediately realized what they had. And, uh, and it busted me up and Space Quest wound up becoming, you know, with uh, Leisure Suit Larry and Space Quest were always the only two adventure games that I would play. And uh, I loved them because oh, I, I, I like funny stuff and, uh, and it's tough to make me smile, but they did it. Those were, uh, I, I mean, how crazy. Those two guys were just insane. So <laughs> love Space Quest. Well, speaking of
4: Leisure Suit Larry, I mean, I've got memories of playing that, you know, as a kid and uh, asking my dad, you know, Dad, I've got a question for school. Can you help me answer this Um, to get past that screen at the start when it was the age test? (laughs) I mean, how did you actually meet Al Lowe and what was kind of the path to Leisure Suit Larry being made?
5: Yeah, the funny part of Al Lowe was that he came up to me at a computer show in San Francisco to show me um, he was a teacher and his wife was a teacher and they had built some... uh, educational products for very young children i'm trying to remember the name of them but they were like bop bet was one of them where you would uh, teach kids the alphabet and al um al showed me those games and i said sure i'll market them and uh so we put them in ziploc bags and that was kind of our educational lineup in the early 80s and then we published a game called soft porn which was a text adventure game that became kind of a uh industry phenomena. And at some point I wanted to convert it to have graphics. And Al had worked on, uh, I think on King's Quest with Roberta, he did some of the coding and uh, was looking for something to do. And I said, why don't you do Leisure Suit Larry? Because Al was just a funny guy, but he was a teacher and pretty straight. And I think I remember him talking to his, uh, his preacher and say, should I do this? And, uh, and the preacher saying, do I get 10% and, um, <laughs> and then off it went, uh, Larry did, uh, yeah, and Al did leisure suit Larry and he converted that, uh, soft board game to, uh, graphics and added a whole lot more to it. And, uh, and, and it became wonderful. And Larry was such a
4: character as well, wasn't he?
5: Yeah, he was. And, and. Yeah, and the magic to Larry, at least in those days, I I saw a demo of the recent Larry game, and it looked like they'd shifted away from it, was that um, Larry was uh, kind of a lovable loser who could never seem to get girls, and the joke was always on Larry. You know, I never really considered it a sexist game or anything. Uh, It was just kind of fun, kind of risque humor. And, and you probably shouldn't have been playing it as a young lad, but uh, <laughs> it was uh, it was good. And it was unusual in the market for the time. And, uh, and, and yeah, it became a phenomenon. I mean, everybody, even to this day, when I tell them that, you know, I was Leisure Suit Larry's dad, they, uh, they're impressed.
1: Well, how much did piracy affect Sierra? And uh, how effective were the kind of countermeasures that were introduced in some of the games?
5: I was trying to remember that the other day. I know at the beginning, I was um, coding at the hard level, hardware level for the uh, disk drives in order to do copy protect. And uh, that we licensed copy protect schemes and that they were on those old floppies. And they were kind of, in general, a pain in the butt because um, people would get floppy disks and uh, they would work in one uh, hard drive or one floppy drive and then they'd get a new floppy drive or put it in the other floppy drive and it suddenly wouldn't work anymore. So it was kind of, I mean, we were getting back some percentage of everything we shipped as a return because, you know, the floppy protect was so uh, fierce. So we experimented with other, um, methods and, um, you know, that weren't hardware based, but there was no internet today. You do a license via the internet, but that, uh, that wasn't true then. So then we just dropped copy protect and sold the games with no copy protection and, um, and did just fine. But there wasn't the internet where people could so easily swap games with each other in those days. Yeah. I'm thinking about that now with my book and the PDF version. <laughs> I say, you know, why, why wouldn't somebody mail that PDF to all of their friends and, and they will, but, oh, well, that's, that's the world today
1: i heard that more guides of leisure suit larry were sold than actual copies of the game
5: yeah and uh, and actually i think we sold more copies of the game than there were computers in uh, out there in the store the <laughs> um that well, yeah that was funny because uh, all the retailers wanted to have it and they loaded uh, loaded to the gills with the product and uh, or no i guess it was soft porn but we outsold apple computer we had sold more copies of it than Apple had sold computers, which was kind of crazy in those days. But, uh, oh, well, yeah, you're right. We sold a lot more hint books than we ever sold um, actual copies of the games.
4: Well, I love the story in your book about John Travolta. You almost, you almost made a game with John Travolta then. What was the story there?
5: Oh, that was, uh, that was my big idea. I was always looking for uh, other industries where there'd been a hit and how I could move that into uh, uh, consumer software. And, uh, Jane Fonda at that time had a series of VHS videos that, uh, were just huge. I mean, she must've made a fortune on those things. So I was thinking, well, gosh, you know, if you can do it on a videotape, why couldn't we do it on a computer? And, uh, the movie staying alive happened to be coming out about that time. And there was this picture of John Travolta looking all buff, uh, a little different than he looks today, but, uh. He, so I you know, called his agent and said, uh, why don't we have uh, John Travolta launch a series of exercise uh, discs with us? And uh, somehow, Roberta and I wound up going over to his house, which uh, Roberta was delighted with, and uh, showing him the, the uh, program, which was really nothing more than, uh, it was pretty dumb. I had the artist throw it together quickly, and it was like this little pixelated nothing doing jumping jacks. And, uh, John had to say, oh yeah, that looks really nice. Uh, you know, write a big check. And, um, instead, you know, he saw uh Microsoft flight simulator on my computer and we wound up spending the afternoon playing that. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, I don't know the, the deal never did come together because uh, I didn't want to step up to the advances required, but, uh, but it would have been a cool project. And ahead of its time, I, I think if it had been, uh, At a later point in the industry when there were decent graphics, there would have been a good deal there uh, that would have made us both a lot of money.
4: At least he probably went out and bought a copy of Flight Simulator and helped Microsoft out, I guess, after that.
5: Yeah, I think he actually (laughs) went out and bought a 747, so uh, (laughs) who knows?
4: Well, another great
1: character is Sonny Bonds and he comes from the police quest series i i was wondering like did you and roberta have the idea of police quest before actually meeting jim walls or, or was that the inspiration and how much did he help make the series so successful and realistic
5: well you know i think that one happened my recollection is that jim walls was uh the husband of like roberta's hairdresser or something like that and roberta came home and said um Your hairdresser's husband was a retired cop and had been in a shootout. And um, it sounded kind of interesting. It got me thinking. I was a big fan of a writer, uh, uh, Joseph Wampall, I think was his name, who uh, who wrote uh, cop books and uh, just liked the genre and had been thinking it would be great to try to do something on a computer. And when I heard there was a a retired policeman in uh, Oakhurst where we lived, That became an automatic to uh, call him and see if I could talk him into doing a game because I always wanted um, people doing the games who were super passionate about the category and it kind of lived and breathed it. And to have a real live cop work on a cop game just seemed uh, obvious to me and uh, people appreciate it and loved it. It, uh, It became a huge series. Well, Quest for Glory was obviously a very groundbreaking
4: game, mixing graphic adventure with role-playing. How did you meet Corey and Lorianne Cole, and what was kind of the, the story behind the game? And was a lot cut out of that? Because I read it was a really big game.
5: It was a really big game. It kind of got hurt by the name change. Originally, it was going to be called Heroes Quest, and I think we shipped it like that, and then we got threatened with litigation and wound up renaming it to Quest for Glory. And that kind of messed things up a little bit. But... uh but no, it was it was incredible, and how I met them. I think that um, they were writing uh, fantasy type books at the time, and but living in Oakhurst, and somehow, or I don't remember. They, I guess, the bottom line is I don't remember. It, um, what I remember is that uh, when you meet them, Lori especially is—I mean, she just lives and breathes this stuff, and that was always what I looked for more than anything is somebody who. Um, was super passionate about the category and would do it whether they ha- were being paid or not. And Lori and Corey were both like that. They were just into it, and you know, it was really more you know giving them the resources they needed to accomplish their vision. And that was the way I always kind of thought of my job: was find people that were passionate about something and then give them the tools they needed to make it happen. And uh, that was how it worked with them I mean, we, we kind of went round and round through the years and that uh, no matter what budget I gave them they wanted a bigger budget and uh, no matter what schedule I gave them they gave a, wanted a bigger schedule but uh, but you know that was what they did because they cared a lot about what they were doing and they wanted it to be perfect and uh, and it worked yeah you know, people that bought their games loved them.
1: Well, I also love the Imagination Network, and it's kind of unbelievable that you were doing online gaming back in 1991. Um, what, what do you think uh, happened with that network? Was it, was it too ahead of its time, or, or were there just not enough people online to kind of achieve a mass audience?
5: Well, with, with that, we originally launched it under the name... Actually, it, was, it went through a couple of lives. It was launched initially as the Constant Companion, I had, the, and, and, and to set the stage, you got to remember how prehistoric things were. Uh, there was, modems were 300 baud, which uh, I don't even know how to quantify how slow that is. It's painfully slow. You could watch text scroll across the screen as it came in. So uh, it was kind of a uh, prehistoric time, and there was no such thing as the internet. Uh, I think it did exist at that point in colleges, but I would never heard of it. So, um, but our name was Online Systems. And from the beginning, I always wanted things to be online. So I was always thinking about and knew in the back of my mind, our games are all going to connect to each other someday. And it was all these players. But what really became the inspiration was that I had a grandma who was getting older and was suddenly stuck in her house. And, uh, you know, I kind of had this one mission statement where I said, you know, what if my grandma could pick up a bridge game 24 hours a day, seven days a week? And um, I went to some hardware companies and I went to uh, Sprint was a big phone company at the time and said, you know, if you guys will give me computers and give me uh, a network backbone, I think I could do something cool here. Let's do this little um, little physical box. And I I had artists draw pictures of it called the constant companion that could sell for like ninety nine dollars. And we'll go put them in the homes of all the seniors and hook them up to play games with each other. And, uh, they bought into that vision and gave me a lot of computers and network time. And I recruited, uh, I mean, this is crazy to think about, but I recruited, uh, I think it was like 90, uh, 90 year olds. So I mean, it was these, these incredibly senior people, uh, none of whom had ever seen a computer. And we went out to their houses and we set up computers for them to play games. And, uh, with the idea that if this worked, we were going to market this constant companion machine and, um, what went really cool was that uh, in the early days, the network wouldn't work for, I mean, it wouldn't go 20 minutes without crashing because this was, this was pioneering and the modems were slow and I don't know, and we didn't know what we were doing too much. So, uh, you know, the machines would literally overheat, but the seniors who had never been around computers thought it was incredibly fun. And we're making friends and uh, talking to people and, uh, and we designed it. We really nailed the design and everybody loved it. And when the machine would crash, I mean, that, w- that was what told me that we had a winner was that uh, the whole network would come down and people would sit at their computer dialing in again and again and again until the thing reconnected and then the games would be going again. So we knew we had a winner and uh, we even knew that we had nailed the user interface and so then I said, well, maybe we could do something more broad. And I got Al Lowe involved. And um, we kind of came up with the idea of treating it like uh, Disneyland, because I remembered that they had Tomorrowland and Fantasyland and all these different lands. And I said, you know, what if we put games for adults over here and do uh, gambling games and we do kids games and we did some uh crazy games like a little kid's game named Boogers, and then we did flight simulators. I mean, I can't even envision we were doing flight simulators years before the internet. But we did it, and we put the network out there. And uh, the problem in those days that we ran into was that it was costing us because of long-distance call rates, and we were paying for the calls. There was no such thing as an internet backbone. So we were paying uh, 50 and 75 cents or $2 an hour to keep people connected to the network. And they weren't going to pay that. And yet they were addicted and, who uh, would suddenly be doing, you know, six, eight hours a day worth of, uh, we, we renamed it to the Sierra network and changed the focus to be broader. And, uh, we couldn't figure out how to price the thing. I, I, I knew that, you know, I knew where the price point was we needed to be at. And, uh, and we wound up managing to somehow burn through uh, like, I don't know, I think 20 or $30 million uh, yeah. paying for people to connect our network. And the problem we had was that people were so addicted that they wouldn't get off the darn thing. And uh, even, um, you know, Bill Gates and uh, Warren Buffett, I guess, started playing bridge over uh, TSN and uh, fell in love with it. And, uh, so Gates came to me and tried to buy uh, the Sierra network and then AT&T CEO got involved and the two of them were uh, bidding against each other. And I knew that it was bigger than us. It um, it should have been millions and millions of people. And we wound up partnering with AT&T and that didn't work out so well because it got mired in corporate bureaucracy. Whereas we'd been launching a game a week or something. Suddenly, you know, it, you know what happens when you merge a little entrepreneurial company with a big, uh, big bureaucratic machine is you get a big bureaucratic machine and the little company goes away. It's um, so that, uh, yeah, uh, we, you know, and the biggest problem was that we were just too early. If we had started TSN two or three years later, it wouldn't have been the big drag on profit because that's where all the money was going was in uh, paying to keep people online because it was costing us more to have them there than we could ever bring in in revenue. And um, that was sad. I, I'm not sure where it went. After I sold the company, I believe they sold it to AOL, who shut it down. So, wow. but I'm not sure.
4: mean, well, you know, talking about acquisitions and mergers. I mean, I remember reading lots of rumors around that time in the early '90s that you know Sierra almost bought Broderbund and their ID software as well. I mean, what was kind of the story there, and what eventually happened?
5: Well, you know, Broderbund, we actually announced that we were merging with. We were a public company at the time, so it was kind of a big deal. And I was going to run the consolidated company. And it came close. Broderbund and us, uh, Doug Carlston, who ran it, had been a good friend for many years. And we had talked many times about why don't we put these two companies together? Because they were dominant in education and we were dominant in uh, entertainment. And had you put them together, you'd had this incredible powerhouse. But the problem in these things becomes, uh, I guess, egos and who runs what and which management team. And when Doug and I kind of announced we were merging, both of our management teams uh, freaked out. It was kind of like kind of an us versus them mentality. And their team was going to wind up reporting to me. And I think they decided I was kind of a um, kind of a rotten guy and didn't particularly want to work. Everybody has fear of the unknown, which is natural. And I didn't do a, uh, my political skills, I guess, weren't good enough that I could get everybody calm and get everybody working together. And we had to announce that the deal was called off. You know, just one day, Doug called and said, you know, this isn't going to work. And down it came. But that, that came close. Then Ed was kind of another, um, I guess you'd call it a screw up of mine and that the id guys wanted to partner with us. And I wanted to partner with them, but there's also a side of me that really doesn't like extreme violence. I worry what happens when you take young kids and, uh, have them role play as somebody running through a dungeon, shooting at other people That um, that feels wrong to me. So I loved what they were doing with like Castle Wolfenstein and later doom. And, uh, but I loved it from a technical perspective. And I knew it would sell. I mean, I'm not dumb. I knew that there were going to be a huge hit. But it just felt wrong. I think you trade an entire world through kids to uh, handle a gun, and it's not going to be a great world. But, uh, but then again, you know, I also like to um, make money and had a responsibility to uh, the company to do smart things. So I did try to buy them, and we came within inches of it. And probably had it not been for my hesitation to be in that market, which uh, obviously later I overcame when it came time to Half-Life, you know, I kind of missed the boat on uh, id. And um, yeah, and if I could do it over again, obviously I would have bought it. I mean, those guys are pretty incredible.
1: Well, one of the unique things about Sierra was they were remaking their own titles. And you see that happen a lot nowadays, um, people kind of remaking their games, but some of them aren't so good. And uh, some are really well done. With the Sierra ones, they were absolutely fantastic. I remember the Police Quest remakes. Was this kind of a strategy of you guys to go and look at these older titles?
5: Yeah. Well, because it was fairly inexpensive for us to do. And, uh, And they were good. And there was whole new generations of buyers. I mean, today pretty much everybody plays games and everybody has them. But in uh, those days, I mean, the household computer penetration was kind of going from you know, 0% to 5% to 20% to 40%. There was a whole new generation of buyers and a whole new computing capability. I mean, because you know, graphics cards emerged and sound cards emerged and you know, what you could do was becoming different. So we could take the old games and the old designs and fairly easily move them up to current standards and, you know, two thirds of the people out there had never even heard of the darn game or had ever owned a computer. So it was like this whole new market we could sell to. And, and we did. Well, plus, we also discovered international expansion and started moving things into other languages. And, um, and that all worked for us.
4: And I guess, you know, when we had graphics cards and CD-ROM, I mean, obviously we've got stuff like full motion video and digital actors. And Sierra was at the forefront of that as well with, you know, games like SWAT. How did the studio kind of change when all that came around? I imagine it needed a lot more resources per game.
5: Yeah, it did. It was um, Sierra's job. I mean, my philosophy and the thing I always said was that, uh, you know, leaders lead and followers follow. So Sierra's job as a leader, I, I really did see it as our responsibility to figure out where the industry should go and make it go there. You know, it wasn't even where, you know, some people would look and say, where is the industry going and how do we do that? But that wasn't the way we were. I mean, we were kind of like, uh, where do we think it should be and how do we move it, maneuver it there? So I would go see, you know, like the CEOs of some of the hardware companies and say, I need you to do this. And if so, then we'll take advantage of it. So we were we were kind of forcing the industry and the customers figured it out. You know, they would watch Sierra and see what we were doing and uh, and kind of go with us on it. And uh, so we developed. I mean, it's tough now. You look back at the games, they look so clunky and ugly. You don't understand that for their time they were ahead of the uh, head of the pack and that we were defining uh, you know, where the industry should be. And, you know, like sound cards, I mean, we we pushed that. I, I knew from the beginning that the games had to have sound effects and music, and yet uh, it just wasn't happening. So I was going to the hardware companies saying, look, please, please do this, and we'll support it. And um, even, um, you know, we, we, we went to Roland, was how I wound up hooking up with them, and said, um, we need synthesizers, and we need real music, and um, but there was no customer base we wound up selling um sound cards we sold the uh, original Adlib card was one of the r- first cards then we sold the mt32 and we lost money on all of that but we had to create the business in order to make money and um and 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 it worked i mean sound added such a dimension to the products that um without it i mean turn off the sound on any game even today and you'll see it's just a different experience so um yeah that, that was what we did it must
1: have started feeling like you were kind of going into a film company with projects like Phantasmagoria. It was a huge project, and, you know, you'd have to have actors and all of the equipment there. Did you really feel the company was kind of changing
5: then? Yep. Although, you know, from the beginning, I, I thought we were going to be an entertainment company, and I, I would tell people that. I mean, in um, you know, even in the very early days, I would say, you know, some people are going to realize that the uh, music industry and book industry and video industry and stuff, those are just subsets of the uh, bigger picture consumer software company. And that really interactivity adds such a dimension to it. And those other guys are just, you know, like computer games take away the interactivity. So hiring actors and um, sets and everything was kind of planned years before. And it was just a matter of waiting around until we could kind of do it. And for, like, Phantasmagoria, you know, I had a pretty clear vision of where we wanted to go with it. And it suffered a little in that we were so far ahead of the, our time. You know, like CD-ROMs, I, the problem is when you start getting live actors, you burn up a lot of data really quick. And, uh, you know, Phantasmagoria, you know, first it was one, one CD-ROM, and then it was two, then it was three. But there was no um, there was no DVDs in those days. So uh, we kept generating more and more data, and it wound up shipping, I think, on seven CD-ROMs, which would only be one, uh, you know, one DVD or not even any part of a Blu-ray. And, uh, but in those days, that was, that was, and we wound up having to compress the graphics and compress the sound. And as beautiful as the final game was, it uh, was shot at infinitely higher resolution because I knew sooner or later there were going to be things like DVD drives, And uh, we'd be able to make a new version of it at much higher resolution. But uh, none of that ever happened because I sold the company and the uh, new people had a different vision.
4: Well, before we get into that section of your story, I mean, it's um, obviously had a massive hit with Half-Life as well. You mentioned that before. How did you first come across Half-Life then and um, and Valve? And did you realize how special that game was when you first saw it?
5: Well, absolutely. I... Yeah. Sierra's strategy was to internally develop. I was, um, you know, like I wouldn't hire anybody who had ever worked for a competitor. I didn't take games from the outside at that point in our lives. I really wanted kind of complete control. I I wanted a Sierra product to come from Sierra. I didn't want to just be a publisher. And, um, so I wasn't, I wasn't accepting games from other people, but then, um, At that same time, the guys at Valve, uh, Gabe Newell, was trying to find a publisher. He wanted to spin off for Microsoft and develop a game. And he had somehow licensed the Quake engine and uh, was looking for somebody to fund the development of the game and had apparently shown the game to quite a few people and couldn't seem to find anybody. But then I guess somehow through some mutual friend, he called me and I didn't really want to do the meeting because... um, yeah, because I just didn't like that category, but um, they wound up coming to the office and showing, um, showing, uh, showing, well, very, 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 you know, technical prototype of Half-Life, and talking about their vision for the product, and uh, even that they were trying to merge uh, kind of the stories of like our adventures with more of an action game, and um, and I realized they had a big mega hit on their hands, and um, and that I should fund it. And, uh, and that happened. That was, I think, in the final years of the company, the only product that we ever licensed from outside. And it was because, well, some of it was because I couldn't have built it inside. The, uh, because I had passed on Doom, the industry for kind of the uh, shooter games had evolved to a point where I was too late to the party. And other than through, um, and I knew it was a category I had to be in. So other than by doing it in this way, I'd never gotten into the category. And uh, it was kind of taking a risk because these guys were unproven. They had never done anything. They were looking for big development advances. And, uh, but we took a flyer on it and it worked out for them and for us. And um, yeah, and and, and for consumers. I mean, they love the game.
4: Well, in 1996, as you mentioned, you sold to um, CUC. What was the story there then, and um, why them? And how did it change the culture at Sierra?
5: Oh, that one, uh, that was a mess. The, um, the gentleman who acquired the company had been on my board for years, and I um, you know, really loved the guy. It was, it, it was an awesome guy with a big vision who um, had created a big company um, with. Um, many thousands of employees, a public company. He was kind of considered like the Jeff Bezos of his time. They were uh, talking about online shopping and um, moving all the retailers over to online shopping. And he was on our board. And one day he kind of just said, can I buy your company? And I, you know, I, and it was at a time when I was kind of burnt out. I'd been doing Sierra for almost 20 years and Sierra had gotten so big, I and mean, we were a thousand employees, but it was a thousand employees scattered to the wind. One of my uh, core philosophies was that I didn't want more than a hundred people in any one studio because I thought creativity would go out the window. And I wanted, you know, I wanted our products to be innovative and just cool. And I you couldn't do that in a big machine. I, I, I dealt with AT and T and IBM and companies where creativity was not super well-respected and innovation. And I didn't want to become that. And we were getting large enough that we were edging that direction. So I liked the idea that we were scattered, but by having all of our development scattered, I mean, we had something like 12 development groups with them in Boston and San Francisco and Seattle and Yosemite, but also in uh, the UK and France and Oh, the East Coast. I, I, I was spending all of my time on airplanes flying from group to group. And I don't like airplanes. And uh, I didn't like being kind of the ivory tower guy that would show up in Boston at a meeting with Papyrus and uh, have to quickly figure out if the game was marketable or not. It, um, I was getting so far removed to the action. You know, at heart, I really wanted to be involved with the games and the technologies as a company grew, I was becoming kind of a corporate bureaucrat. And uh, plus, intense pressure. We were a public company. Every 90 days, I had to be able to show the public that we were growing like crazy. And if a product shifted from one quarter to another quarter, all of a sudden everybody hated me and stock options would lose value. And, you know, the financial people would be calling me. And it, it was just pressure like you can't believe. And all of a sudden uh, this one board member was offering to buy us, and he knew the company cause he'd been on our board for five years. And, um, and I said, sure. It, um, you know, it, it, I thought it was going to work out good. But, and, and part of the story was he was planning on acquiring not just us, but most of our competitors. He had already spoken to Lucas art and had them on board. He had talked to Davidson, had him on board, um, they were, I think they had already done the deal with Blizzard or at least had it underway. And, you know, his vision was to consolidate the industry and create um, the most powerful uh, company and consumer software. And, it, it, you know, I bought into that vision because, you know, I, I realized if you took all those companies, put them together, then you form a company that can never be beat in the consumer space. And um, so, yeah, I, I, I agreed to join up. But uh, then when it all came together, it was kind of a disaster with um, everybody feuding over who was going to run the thing. And um, that's kind of a long story. I don't know if you want me to get into it or not.
4: Well, I know you stepped down from Sierra in 1997. I guess that was in the middle of all that.
5: Yeah, it was. I just wanted it to succeed. You know, I personally, I'd done it long enough that I was ready to do something different but I would have been happy to run it and keep, uh, keep going. But, um, you know, the problem was some of it was just uh, Bob Davidson was running it and he's got a pretty strong ego and I was uh, running my my piece of it and had a strong ego and uh, Bob and I were kind of feuding and, uh, and actually I would even say as much we were feuding, there was no doubt in his mind, he should be running it and I should be gone because I was kind of a disruptive influence. And uh, after fighting that for a little bit, I agreed with him that it was better I step aside and let him run the company. But then we also hit problems in that I don't think I had realized how tied into running Sierra I was. And once I was not there, it became kind of um, crazy time in that uh, every, you know, uh, uh, probably the most powerful word in my vocabulary was the word no, <laughs> because everybody wanted more money for their project they wanted longer development times they wanted uh, you know they wanted their pet game to be built and a lot of what I did was really run from place to place kind of pulling in the reins and focusing people on um, making money at the other end of the game and when you pulled me out of the equation and didn't uh, put in somebody similar um, it became kind of uh, looney Tunes time and everybody just kind of did what they wanted. And with the company scattered that far, um, it was tough to manage. You know? And I think, well, plus then the other thing that obviously went wrong was not only did I quit, but then within a month, I think like two months after I quit, Bob Davidson quit, which uh, shocked the heck out of me. And somebody from the acquiring company uh, stuck in one of their guys who had no idea what he was doing. And, uh, I mean, he was a smart guy, and I actually kind of liked him, but, you know, you can't run a big software company with zero experience. And, um, and you know, while he was kind of getting his feet wet, things drifted even farther sideways. And then the company that acquired us turned out to um, have some accounting fraud, not just some accounting fraud, big accounting fraud. Like they had uh, printed $500 million worth of profit. And, uh, that became kind of a big scandal. And, uh, and those guys actually wound up going to jail, including the guy that had been on my board. So, um, you know, it was kind of like the final nail in the coffin at that point and, uh, destroyed Sierra, or at least the Sierra I knew, you know, I still see the Sierra name pop up on packages, but, um, you know, the Sierra that I ran that, uh, I sold in 1996 at that point was kind of dead. So, um, it, uh, yeah, it was a sad turn of events for Sierra, and especially for the employees. I mean, you know, a lot of them were there because I had talked them into being there. And uh, we'd grown some of it through acquisition. And the people that were running the individual divisions like Dynamics and Papyrus and Impressions and, oh, there was a bunch of them, um, were there because, you know, synergistic. I had sold them a story that I was going to give them their creative freedom. And let them do what they do as long as uh, they met the uh, kind of the metrics that I had for how to uh, make money on a product. And, and I really did give them that creative freedom and um, really was there to help. And we had fantastic relationship with everybody. But uh, those people all got burnt. I mean, a lot of them, you know, like me, they sold their company. It wasn't just my dream that was destroyed. It was all of theirs. So, um, so it was pretty sad. That, uh, yeah, not, not a great ending to the story.
4: Well, obviously people can read more about these stories in your book, which is actually called not all fairy tales of happy endings. Um, you go into a lot more depth in the book. I mean, why was 2020 the right time to release a book about Sierra then?
5: Well, the, <laughs> the reason is the obvious one. Actually everybody's been pestering me for uh, 25 years. Why don't you write a book about Sierra? And the answer has always been no, because, uh, well, first off, cause I didn't want to do it. And also, you know, I just didn't want to think about Sierra. I mean, you can't imagine how painful it is to, um, see somebody wreck, um, wreck so many lives It, um, yeah, it, it, horrible, horrible. And and, 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 you know, just to even think about it hurts. So I, the last thing I wanted to do is call all those people whose lives I destroyed and say, you know, spend me up to speed on what's happening and help me, um, you know, talk to me about what I should write and, and and just think about it. I didn't want to think about it. So for 25 years, I kind of focused on other stuff. And, um, you know, it's completely independent, but we went on to a second 15 minutes of fame in a different category. and uh, But this year was different in that um, we had all kinds of plans for this summer and we're well, we're planning on doing things, but then uh, like all of you, the uh, virus struck and suddenly we were pinned down to home and I was staring at my computer with nothing to do. And Roberta said, why don't you write a book? So I was thinking I'd write something fictional or I would pick some, you know, write true crime or do something. And uh, then I discovered that I had no talent for any of those. And I kept staring at the blank screen and, um, then Roberta said, maybe you could write about Sierra. And suddenly, you know, words started flowing. And then there was a book. And it came together quickly. And I, you know, kind of looked at it. And I said, I wonder if people would like this. And um, and there it is. So it wasn't really a conscious effort. Like, it just kind of happened. So. Well, that's
1: there's been other Sierra books. We had Shaw Mills on the podcast, for example, and he, he did a great one about the history, but this book is your personal story, uh, kind of from your eyes for the whole company, I guess.
5: That is true. It's, uh, you know, and it's kind of unusual in a book in that most business books are, uh, ghost and, uh, you know, be it good or bad. I mean, this book is me and, uh, And it's the view from my perspective. And I'm, you know, in some ways it might disappoint people in that uh, Sean Mills picked up the phone and called everybody pretty much that worked for Sierra. Uh, He really did his job as far as researching it. And uh, I was reading his book and it was kind of fun because I got to see the company through the employees' eyes. And that's not my book. You know, my book is more of, you know what happened from my perspective and why Sierra was the Sierra it was and uh how it got started and how it uh how it died and so i, I you know that a way i could see my my book almost being in a uh you know an MBA program at a business school because it talks about uh, marketing strategies and product strategies and budgets for products that might bore the hell out of a lot of Sierra fans but um so we'll see. yeah I, I, I tried to make it uh, it's certainly an entertaining story. I mean gosh, it, uh, you know it's kind of a rags to riches to rags story, I guess you'd call it, but um, with people that went to jail and lies and corruption and sex and you know kind of everything uh, you know, it's like a political campaign or something all of that crap thrown in there. So it's, it's a fun story, but we'll, we'll see if people like it. It's certainly different than I think a lot of people are expecting.
4: Okay, well, you, know, you were kind enough to send me an advanced copy of it. And I can tell, you know, as a fan, seen, I couldn't put this book down. I read the entire thing over the weekend. So it's such an easy read as well. And just, you know, the way you tell the stories, is fantastic. So I'm sure that everyone's going to enjoy it. Um, and if people want to register to get, the copy of, uh, get a copy of the book, kensbook.com is the website they can register on there. When's it going to be available to everybody then?
5: Well, you know, it's finished and I sent it off to the printers and they're supposed to send me a press proof. And every day I look at the mail, hoping it comes. And uh, the current date when I get it is like October 2nd to 6th, it says, is all the information I have. So, but the second I get it, then uh, unless something I screwed up and it's missing pages or something, which I don't think so, I think it's going to be fine. And probably within about a week, I'm going to press the button and Turn it loose for sale. Now, um, I'll have a link I'll send out to everybody that's registered that tells how to get it directly from the printer. But uh, showing up on Amazon might take a few weeks. I'm not sure. I don't know how long it's going to take them to pick it up. But I've already teed up the uh, PDF version, EPUB version, and Kindle version. And I'll probably press the button on those immediately. So it might be that uh, all the digital versions will be available immediately about a week from now and the printed version probably another week or two after that i'm not real sure but uh but hopefully i'll pull it all together at once and get everything out there so soon
4: fantastic well ken i'm so pleased that you did put it down on paper and told your story you know like, like i said as you know a couple of guys who grew up playing your games it's just incredible to hear the stories from you and read them in the book as well so we really appreciate you coming on and being our guest this weekend thank you
5: well thank you for having me it's been a lot of fun